Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Gary Goro. Gary is a Vedic meditation practitioner and master teacher. He is also a qualified Ayurvedic health coach and mindfulness expert with over 15 years of experience. Gary has worked with thousands of people from all walks of life, and his services are sought after by some of the world's leading companies, CEOs, celebrities, and healthcare practitioners for his innovative meditation and mindfulness programs. Gary Goro, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks for coming in. Pre- appreciate it. Good yeah, morning. Thanks for having me. Um, interesting podcast, eh? Because we've, up till this point, been discussing everything to do with, I guess, cosmetics and treatments. Um, even we have nutritionist on. I had a bit of a chat to Jack. I'm like, we should get, we should start talking about the mind. Get someone on, like Gary. I did a meditation course a few years ago. So. It's going to be interesting because Jake's like come from a different world where this stuff's all like <laughs> I'm from a, bit, a bit woo-woo or a bit like, you know, where's the science? So this is I'm really interested to see how I'm this gonna is going to I'm going to balance play. that. So <laughs> yes, you are probably more open-minded, yeah. but having met my wife actually, which is obviously quite a while ago now, she's a naturopath. So she has taken me from that Western surgeon mind to more, oh, okay, there's other things out there. But um, this will be a good, in, it could be a good podcast to um, sort of explore what you do, and, and maybe yeah. you know David can sort of jump in with his experience with obviously doing some training with you. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we, um, I guess, start the journey back or have a bit of a chat about where this all started for you? So mm. um, obviously you haven't been doing meditation your whole life, um, and how did it all start, and what led you to this point where we are today? Well, I think there's life sort of. Before meditation, then life after meditation. Okay. And I think I was always a, a very deep thinker as a kid. I remember being like five, six years old and contemplating like the nature of life and reality and where do we come from and what happens to us when we die. And I got into a pretty deep space and I had no real mentors or guides or a guru per se. So I started to ask questions that I didn't know the answer for and then I had to back away. I'm like, that's kind of too deep. But I don't know, do you just dust when you die? Is that just the end of all existence? And mm. So I, I I kind of let my spirituality go at that point. And then I just was drawn back into it again. I started getting very much into kind of Buddhist and Vedic philosophy. It just seemed to be like something that just felt like I had a resonance with. And I was studying a lot of those teachings and it was very much, um, I don't know, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me and it seemed to touch something deep in me and... I just kept going more in that direction. And how old were you when you got into that? Uh, my mum sort of told me a few things I said along the way of like when I was very young and I was like, shoot, I don't remember saying that, but God, I'm glad I did because that seemed like a lot, like quite a amount of, <laughs> deep amount of wisdom. And then I guess 
I went into, I, I grew up on the beaches, Northern beaches, which the culture back then was very much certainly the where I grew up. It was very much about getting drunk, <coughs> chasing girls and just surfing and being a misfit. Yeah. And it was great, but at a certain point along the journey, I was like, this doesn't just feel right for me. Mm. It's like I've, I know it's okay to do that and some people could spend their whole life doing that, but I was I was really reaching the end of my kind of use-by date with it. <laughs> yeah. Thinking, you know, how, many times, how many times you get drunk and be hungover and be drunk and hungover. And, yeah. and then I think it was like the universe seemed to just do this big setup. I, I got really stressed, really down about life. And I just remember having this moment thinking, this isn't my model for what my life, sh- the direction it should be taking. And I mm. thought, should, I, surely I should be getting happier with each year of life. I should yeah. be getting more knowledge and more wisdom and creating more sort of abundance and more freedom in my life. And I noticed internally I was getting like less and less happy. So I had this real moment of like, I got to get my shit together or this isn't going to be good. Yeah. So at the age of uh, 21, I started seeking in earnest. And then um, my brother who, um, he was a <clears throat> amazing creative, but he just, I noticed he handled pressure differently to the rest of the family. And so I just quietly said to him, and I said, look, I'm feeling pretty shit and I'm fairly stressed and you seem to be pretty, pretty calm and you take things in your stride. You weren't always that way. Like, what have you done? And he said, oh, I'll tell you my secret. I've been meditating. Hmm. And I'm like, for how long? He goes, for 12 months. I'm like, and he didn't tell anybody? So, well, you never asked. And plus I thought you'd tease me. So I you just sort of kept it to myself. You didn't bedroom and gongs <laughs> and so, going off and stuff. Yeah, so he was the one that really set the tone for, for, I guess, the whole family. And then I learned and then I just knew right from that moment I learned like something huge shifted in me. It was like what I've been seeking and, and needing my whole life. It just sort of took me back to, I guess, what my culture couldn't offer me. It, it, there was spirituality really wasn't a thing in my culture and nor was introspection or really learning to know yourself or getting in touch with what was going on beneath the surface and, and even like seeking deeper meaning. Um, that just really wasn't something that was a conversation, at least amongst sort of, you know, my peers at the time. Hmm. So I kind of broke away and then been on the journey ever since and just going deeper into it. Wow. Hmm. So where did you learn to meditate? I learned to meditate in Jersey Road, Willara of all places. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I had, I was about to give up my life. I thought, well, the only place I know where what I'm really craving exists is in India. And they've got very much a structure over there of like, gurus and students and you know you go and you find a guru and they impart all this knowledge and they help develop you as a human being and you uh you know develop a degree of self-sufficiency and whatnot so I thought well I have to renounce my life and I got to go to India so I was very much moving in that direction wow that's pretty drastic yeah because yeah. I just didn't know there was another model because I was so young and naive when you were sort of at school and and you know did you go to uni or what What did you want to do when you were younger? Well, I was interested in, I had two older brothers who were amazing creatives and they still are, they're powerhouses. And that gene just seemed to skip me. And so I looked at these two guys growing up and I thought, what have I got? These guys are just so gifted. And then I realized, well, I'm good at writing and I love communication. So I started to pursue that. But writing's a lonely, it's a lonely task yep. and it's arduous too because... You know, it takes a long time to produce things. So um, I started to go, I started as a journalist and I studied that and I worked um, 
you know, dabbling in, in, in various forms. And then I discovered screenwriting and then I went mm. um, into filmmaking and then I, my brother created a Subi, which was a fashion label back in the day. It was yeah. a pretty huge one. And then that by osmosis, I sort of got inspired. Then I started a fashion label and then I went into photography and, and I got into film and TV. So I kind of went into that space. Okay. And then... Yeah, I learned to meditate and just literally knew that I would be giving all that up at some point so to you, pursue this. Did you sort of choose to, you know, become a meditative master or guru yourself? Well, when I learned, it was funny. Um, I had the experience, you know, when you learn, it was a really beautiful setting. And the guy that I learned from, Tom Knowles, he's, you know, he, he's received an honorary doctorate. So he's a doctor, Tom Knowles. Um, very well balanced guy. He's got a lot of kids, but fully integrated. Mm. And he showed me, you don't need to renounce your world. You just need to embrace your nature. And as a householder, you know, we like relationships, socializing people and communities and all that stuff. Mm. So he showed me another model because a lot of what I was referencing were people that were really withdrawn. Yeah. It was very much a solo inner experience. So he just kind of um, showed me that another way exists. And when I learned with him, my experience, I had a quite a mystical experience and a voice just came in and said, hey, you'll be doing this someday. Mm. And that was just the furthest thing from my mind. Literally a voice came and said, you'll be teaching this someday soon. Cool. And so from that moment I thought, okay, I get it. And I, I, I agreed with that, like it felt right. Mm. But I thought you've got to do your time, you've got to do your apprenticeship and you really got to get yourself into a, you know, a very clear heightened state before you can ever step into that role of being a teacher. So that was my quest to do as much inner work as I could. And then I just knew when I was ready, he would see that. And, and he did eventually said, okay, time for you to train like formally or did informal study and then studied in earnest. And, and yeah, that's kind of what happened. And I still feel I'm in a perpetual state of learning and growing. So Gary, can you explain to the simpletons like me, <laughs> What is meditation? I think it, <laughs> if you said to someone, what is, you know, a Granny Smith apple, everyone will give you 100% the same sort of description and definition. Yeah. Whereas with meditation, it means so many different things to everybody. Okay. So it's become a very, very broad term. The dictionary's definition is it means to focus, to concentrate, to contemplate deeply on something. Mm. When I meditate, I don't do either of those things. Sure. Um, for me, I would define meditation as transitioning into a different state of consciousness or a different mode of mind. Mm -hmm. So meditation is a f formal practice or technique of really changing your neurophysiology and dropping into a very deep state of physiological rest, but in a state where your mind is withdrawing from its attachment and engagement with just thinking the world around you and all of those preoccupations we have mm. and going into this very settled, centered state of awareness. Okay. Mm, it's kind of interesting because when, for the, for the lay person or someone that hasn't studied meditation, I think the perception is I just have to sit there and think about nothing. Yeah. And it's like, how do I think about nothing? The more I try and think about nothing, the more it's like, don't think yeah. of a pink elephant. It's like, oh shit, I'm thinking about a pink elephant. <laughs> yes. like, so exactly. is that is that sort of like a, a common that, I, misconception? Yes, that's definitely a common misconception. Well, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I could never do that. <laughs> I'm just thinking of shopping no and work that, and, by the way. <laughs> you know, babies coming and just so many things on yeah. most people's minds all the time. How, how do, well, you're going to tell us, but... 
I just can't get my head around that. And somehow, like, I, I even went to a, my daughter goes to, um, you know, this diner school up in Byron and and just out of service, I, I taught the teacher to meditate because I knew she's got like 30 kids. She's got to like stay on top of and that'd be a task. Mm. That's one of the hardest jobs in the world. So I go there to teach them. They're just bouncing off the walls and I get their focus for about five seconds and they're gone again. And so anyway, I was teaching them some meditation techniques. But prior to doing that, I said, who knows what meditation is? And every single hand went up. Mm. And how many of you do it? And like none of the hands went up. And I'm like, well, how do you know what it is if you've never done it? And I asked them, what is it? And each of the kids gave me a completely different definition. I thought, where do they get this stuff from? Yeah. So it's somehow it's in the collective consciousness that there's this idea that meditation is this thing. Um, so I'd say a lot of people think it's about going into absolute silence and having nothing going on in your mind. Mm. And I'd say that's really difficult to achieve such a state. For example, a friend of mine, she interviewed the Dalai Lama and said, I'd love to be able to get into your mind when you meditate. It must be the most magical, serene place on earth. And he responded, he said, are you kidding me? (laughs) He said, I'd have to train for weeks to enter such a state. Right. So he was really in that, doing two things, revealing the fact that there's just normal momentum in the human mind. You know, we're engaging with so much all the time. So there's going to be different thought forms. And he also gives people permission in that statement to just realize, oh, it's maybe not about having absolute silence. And that's what I teach. You know, it's just there's a distinction between a meditative state and a waking state. Mm. So people think meditation, this, this or that. And I just say, forget that whole concept. Just um, have the idea to enter into a meditative state. And a meditative state is inclusive of there being some activity inside your mind. So, so it's not complete silence. There can be silence and activity simultaneously. I guess the scientist in me is kind of trying to categorize this as in, you know, awake, normal, mm-hmm. yes, asleep, yes, and, and you're somewhere Dream. in the middle. Yeah, so... But you're not hypnotized, you're, you're yeah, conscious. Exactly. yeah. So the human states, you know, regular states of consciousness, waking, sleeping, dreaming, everyone experiences those. Hmm. The meditative state is a completely different and distinct fourth state of consciousness where it has some of the hallmarks of the other states, but it's unique. So you have deep rest, in fact, deeper rest, deeper physiological rest than sleep, yet you have some of the wakefulness or the consciousness of the waking state. So you're not completely like blacked out. Mm. When you're asleep, people could come and rearrange your furniture, steal your stuff, and you wake up and go, what happened? No awareness. Whereas in meditation, that could never happen because mm. there's a degree of attunement to the world, but it's so faint. So you go into, yeah, a, 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 somewhere in between all that. And often people come out of meditation like, oh, so how was it? They're like, it's like I was asleep. But I wasn't asleep. I was going to say, so do you feel rested? Yes, Like definitely. energized? Absolutely, 100%. Okay. Yes. When you come out, you'll feel recharged, you're free revitalized. But during it, who knows? It's like a Pandora's box. Mm. You just never know what's going to happen in your meditation. You could fall asleep. You could go into bliss. You could have a busy one. You could have a deep one. You could feel physiological changes happening. You might laugh. You might cry. You might have some big emotional release. You mm. might lose sense of time and space and go completely beyond your you know ego self it's different every single time yeah and it's not meant to be a cookie cutter and that's the mistake like people think oh meditation is just one thing it's the absence of all mental activity Mm. and it's not you know it changes 
seems like it's it's the forgotten dimension of who we are as people. Yeah. Because we live in a world where we're mm. so outwardly focused on yeah. what we do for a living, how much money we make, what we look like, who likes us, who doesn't like us, how many <laughs> followers we've got on Instagram, what do they think about my latest post? Mm. All that <sighs> trying to keep up with, you know, paying debts and mm. people, myself included, you forget about the inner you. Exactly. Um, and I guess that's why I wanted to explore that with you today is because it seems like when we talked about aesthetics, it's, in, you know, in, aesthetics doesn't just have to be mm. how you look outside, it's how you look inside. Yeah. Um, and how the power of the mind can affect mm. the way that we function in society, the way that we look, the way that we like, interact with other people. Do you think that it's becoming more and more important for us to get back in touch? with with this side of ourselves and totally yeah i think you know there's been different revolutions you know that humanity has has journeyed through one being the agrarian the industrial now we're going through this tech revolution and now it seems that the consciousness revolution is dawning because we've done so much you know external or outer exploration and building cities and bridges and societal structures and whatnot. But when you look at the way the people within our society are feeling each and every day, you think there's kind of, we're failing. Mm. There's not much, we suffer from affluenza. There's more stuff, you know, more access to everything. More and more depression. And yeah. And there's the, the, the incidences of stress and mental disease are, are skyrocketing. So I think it's a, an imperative and, and, you know, it's almost a necessity to become introspective and really get in touch with your inner self and your inner life and, and clear that up. Because I think a lot of what we attempt to do, if someone doesn't feel fulfilled or whole or happy, they attempt to fill that void by doing all those things people do. Getting new shoes and house and car and, you know, having surgery or whatever it may be, when you realise... You're, it's a it's a losing battle, really, the physical one, because it's going one direction, right? It's getting older. Mm. It's a small point, but you know, coming back to what I do, very occasionally people come in and say, "I just need something done today to my face because I feel crap." Yes, and you sort of look at them and you're like, "I don't know how to deliver that because that's not <laughs> what is the answer." Yeah, uh, you know, and obviously you wouldn't yeah. treat that person, but it's interesting that people will mm. voice that. Yeah, you know they'll say, yeah, yeah. I, "I need to look that's good because I feel crappy inside," mm. and uh, I guess that's why we've done this podcast. Is this link between feeling and looking good? But mm. sometimes there's a disconnect because you've got to be right internally first before you mm. show that. I yeah. guess. And even I think one of the insights I I have had is I've had the benefit of like working with a bunch of really high profile, beautiful celebs and supermodels and things like that. And you really kind of sit with them and you get in touch with them. A lot of them feel like uncomfortable in their own skin. Mm. They feel insecure and they don't feel like they're beautiful. And you're like, well, if you're struggling with that, like what chances any other person on the planet got? Mm. Because, you know, you run the, you know, the genetic lottery, yet you still feel inadequate or you still feel like you're not enough. Yeah. And so I think at some point our society's got to transition into the outer is really important, but so is the inner and we have to give equal attention and, you know, nourishment to those two places. Yeah. So I guess getting back to the link of aesthetics um, and the ageing process, could you yeah. talk to us a little bit about what role stress has mm. um, or what effect it has on our bodies and how I guess meditation can help us to sort of temper that or... or yeah. Or, I mean, when you look, 
I often look at people before when they go into office in the US as a president. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at them after their term and you think, Great. Were they in there for 40 no, years? Yeah. Because they look like they've aged so dramatically. Obama was a very Obama, interesting yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's, he's black. So those guys, you know, a woman said to me the other day, what's well, black doesn't crack. And like, <laughs> they, they uh, age well, yeah. Yeah, he, they age phenomenally. And he looked remarkably older at the end of his term, yeah. as did George Bush and all those guys. And you have to think, like, would there be a moment peace in that job? I don't think there would. You know, we reckon we got a lot going on. Imagine when you're the central figure. It, maybe you're not making all these big decisions. You know, you've got these departments around you, but enormous amount of focus on you, mm. a lot of like demands. So stress essentially accelerates the aging process. It leads to a running down of the system. When you get stressed, you're sending different chemistry throughout your whole body. And so that will affect the aging of your body, of your organs. It's going to affect the way in which your nervous system runs. So it's going to be idling at a much, much higher rate. You're not going to um, sleep well and get the recovery you need. So it just leads to this, you know, this rapid depletion of your system. Whereas meditation seems to do the exact opposite. If you're doing it as prescribed, you know, you're meditating twice each day and de-exciting your whole system, shutting it down essentially, taking it into a state of rest, which is declared to be deeper than sleep. So it's very like supportive to, um, you know, the body aging gracefully. And just one thing my on my guru, he's he's got a lot of kids. He lives in the US and, you know, they're crazy about like health insurance over there. So he would um, have to get a like an age test and a health test annually. And then they measured his like biological age and then he would get it done every, every year. And he was found to just basically sit at the same age and sort of sometimes go down. And he was say 60, yet his biological age was mid thirties. Does he look younger or is it just, he's his got bio- gray, but he looks amazing. Right. Yeah. He's got this real vitality and radiance to him. Hmm. Um, he's kind of got this ageless aspect to him. Interesting. And, yeah. And it's, you know, and even his guru back in, like he introduced this practice to the West and, you know, he was a sensation. He was creating this massive worldwide movement and journalists, you know, would go and, you know, write big pieces on him and whatnot. And the journalists after a while of following him around just found like they couldn't keep up. And he was, you know, in his, his late fifties, sixties. And they said, I've been watching you for days and I've, discovered that you don't sleep or if you do sleep it's only for like a couple of hours so how are you actually able to sustain such high levels of activity and engagement with very little rest and he said well i've discovered a way in which i can rest deeper than you are when you're sleeping yet i can remain active and so when you calm your consciousness your body is literally the printout of whatever's going on inside your consciousness. Whatever your mind is doing, your body literally becomes that. Mm. If you have a panic thought, your blood chemistry changes. If you're feeling elated and jovial and really excited about seeing somebody, then you'll find your chemistry changes to reflect that. So the body is so sensitive to what the psyche is experiencing. And so if you can cultivate this state of calm, connectedness and this presence, then your body is not getting all these stress signals rushing through it. It's not getting ravaged by panic and anxiety and worry and overthinking and doing all of that. So then the body's more prone just to, you know, 
age in the way at the rate nature intended. Mm. So that it's said that meditation can not just slow the biological aging, but it can reverse it. Chronological aging we can't do much about unless mm. we learn to time travel. Can I touch on something, probably going backwards a bit, but you use the word guru. That, mm-hmm. that means teacher, does teacher, it? Yeah. I think for a lot of people, and I'm going to put myself in that bracket as well, there's a sort of a barrier to meditation because it's seen as quite spiritual, mm-hmm. yogic, Buddhist, and, and that's something yeah, yeah. completely alien to me at yeah. least. Do, do you have to have that spiritual component? Absolutely not. Okay. No, it's a me- I, I say to people it's a mental technique. Call it whatever else you want, but essentially it's a mental technique. You sit and you learn to calm your consciousness. You learn to settle and de-excite your brain, and then you go into this alternate alter, alternative state to the you know the, to waking and dreaming, sleeping, hmm. and then by virtue of contact in that state, you get nourishment in the form of rest and a brain that's more optimized. You get more creative ideas, and you become. I guess more empathic and more um, patient and all of this upside. Mm. But you don't have to, you could be atheist. Yeah. You could yeah. be Christian. You could be um, someone who's a simpleton or someone who's like studied deeply into different doctrines. Like, who cares? Yeah. It's a mental technique that's working direct on your nervous system and yeah. beliefs don't actually support it in any way. So, so, I guess it's just that it has come from those traditions, that it has taken those languages or, yeah. or, or, yeah. sort of pathways, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I look at what happened to the Buddha. Like this isn't a Buddhist-based practice. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not even religious. Hmm. Um, I would say I'm spiritual and there's often a distinction between someone who's religious and spiritual. Mm-hmm. They're not always the same thing. Um, I don't follow any particular doctrine, philosophy. I just basically live according to what resonates in myself yeah. as the right thing to do. And I think that's the ultimate religion. The ultimate philosophy is purify yourself, get in touch with source, yeah. and then just live your life according to what um, fits for you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, live that. a life of harmony. And when you get out of harmony, if you're in touch, you'll know it and you'll self-correct. Um, so I think like getting back to what I just touched on, I look at what happened to the Buddha, the, like the, de- the, the depictions of the Buddha. I noticed when he went to China, he got really fat. You see the fat laughing Buddha. And then in India totally different. And then in Bali, totally different. So Buddha looks different everywhere. So each culture makes their own appropriations or um, modifications, which is totally fine. Yeah. But uh, in that, um, it's more important that the, that the teachings are there. It doesn't matter what their source is. Mm. And I think all there's ultimately one truth that is identified in all different parts of the world. And then it's just um, propagated in terms of that culture or that environment or that plateau yeah the the religion of a forest will be very different to you know the the deserts yeah. they'll have a totally different sort of mythology and ethos and you know way of way of living out their lives yeah mm-hmm. so i think in our modern times i think religion's dying very much um you know who, who wants to do that anymore the next generation you know they've got no time for that and they'd yep. rather be hanging out with their friends and doing their thing. And I'm like, so you should. But I think there needs to be some reverence given to life has a deeper purpose and you should be dedicating yourself to discovering that and living at one with your purpose. Hmm. And I think that should that, that's, a, that's a higher form of, of religion. So you and I met oh, six, seven years ago. Right? Yeah. Um, used to look exactly the same, by the way. Um, yeah. So obviously it's working. Um, 
I was all about it. I was like, this is great. Mm. And I don't know, what led you to, to contact Gary and why did you? I was just stressed out of my mind with work. Just had mm. so much going on. Yeah. And um, I still do, but I handle it better now. But mm. I don't meditate anymore. And why? why I, I mean, I, I think about it and I go, I really should because it was great. Does this happen a lot that people start and they stop? And, and why does that happen? And how do we sort of yeah. stay on that path? Um. It's an interesting one. I find some people fall off the wagon when they get stressed out. Which is when you need it the most probably. Exactly. It's so <laughs> stupid, but you get all these sort of signals going through your brain, your chemistry change, your brain starts functioning in a different way as something significant happens like lose your job, business crashes, or someone passes away, you move, get divorced, something like that can like interrupt people's sort of way of living their lives and then they just spiral into letting go of the things that they actually should be doing and how many people know that they should be exercising more waking up early going to bed on time and mm. doing all that sort of stuff and don't do it so i think it requires just a little bit of a some some discipline but i hate the word discipline because it reminds me of like the military and mm. being forced to do something you don't want to do so i would say if someone notices they've fallen off just sit take stock and go well where am i at Am I in that place where I feel I'm really optimizing who I am and, and, and what my capabilities are? And if not, then would meditation help support me in that quest? And if they go, yeah, then their intellect's, you know, in support and then they can start to just develop a little strategy of, all right, well, I'm just going to meditate today. I'm just going to meditate tomorrow. And then they can start to get back in the game again. Is it something you can still get benefit from if you're not doing it twice a day? If you're you doing can, twice a day is best because you know life's busy and intense, and the brain never shuts down even in sleep. I even heard it, you know was learning the other day that the brain during sleep is more active than it is in mm -hmm. the day, which is kind of mind blowing because we're not even there anymore. Just sort of processing the, yeah. the experiences of the day to create those memories, maybe. Yeah, it's purging, you know, all of the information and data streaming, and just you know doing big. Um, physiological reset so I think like just and life's not getting less busy or less complicated or less engaging you know it's, it was just more information you know you got to check your Twitter your Facebook your Instagram your email and this thing and that thing and that's <laughs> just, just the worst thing you can do in bed thing. isn't it <laughs> yeah it just creates that oh my god this the st well, stress or Big the world out there uh, what's the word? You, yeah, just it's poor sleep, isn't it? And it's yeah. also just the the light itself from your phone. It's sort of supposed to stop that sleep pattern and cycle. Yeah. You can change it. There's a setting on there you can change to night mode. Night I mode, think. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yellow. Damages the yeah the, the brain tricks it into thinking it's still daytime. Probably easier just to turn Instagram off rather than <laughs> go to yellow mode. Oh, there's that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, regularity is the secret to getting benefit from anything. Really. Yeah, true. And it's just looking at what's the incoming. And one meditation can certainly neutralize the volume of incoming information and stress and whatnot, but you're not necessarily getting this advancement. Mm. So if you're just wanting to maintain sort of level of balance of where you're at, one meditation will do it. But if you have this desire to actually rise in, you know, consciousness and sort of go to a different place, then two is really essential. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of meditation approaches, so you teach Vedic, Vedic meditation. meditation. Yeah. What are the different types and, and what are the differences between them? And why? I guess why have you chosen that one to be your philosophy? Um, I tried different things. I uh, you know, was doing a bunch of yoga as a kid and when it came time to do the yoga at the end of the class, I, I do the meditation. 
I was just like, this sucks, can't do it. I don't know how to calm my mind. This just doesn't work. That was my probably only introduction to meditation. Yeah. I used to do a bit of yoga with my wife and I loved it because it you know, had a bad back. Yeah. But at the end when... It was actually quite relaxing. I'd fall asleep normally. Mm, but, yeah. you know, you'd, you'd, everyone would sort of be lying on their back in the dark and, mm. you know, you're supposed to sort of turn your mind off, as it were. And I was like, what the hell? What do, what do they mean? Yeah. I'm just thinking of, like, what I'm doing tomorrow and planning the day. And I, I don't know. I yeah, just exactly. I couldn't do it. You can't because, you know, you're, you're locked into the mind and then you're trying to not be locked into the mind, but there's no key. There's no way to actually get out of that that room of mind. Mm. So the technique that I teach, Vedic meditation, where you use a mantra, which the word mantra means a vehicle for the mind. So there's specific sounds or words that you introduce into your consciousness or you think them in a particular way and then it'll lead you away from the mind stuff. Mm. It'll take you deeper and deeper and deeper within yourself. So you sort of melt more into a meditative state very spontaneously and organically and naturally. So sort of in layman's terms, it's a bit of a distraction yeah, or an exactly. entry point. Exactly. The mantras themselves, they're self-refined. They're quite magical in that they just get subtler each time you, you think them. Right. So they're naturally prone to take you in. A normal random word or sound won't do that. You're just sort of stay on the surface swimming with it, if mm. you know what I mean. So these mantras, they have this ability to take the mind into this transcendent state. So they make the whole task easy. But without such an agent, it can be really hard and arduous, like they're observing your breath or scanning your body or doing um, such practices. It can be really slow. Concentrating on a candle. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's there, people do stuff like that. I remember one guy, you know, I went under the, I was in the, the dentist, and he was doing some work on my teeth, and he's like, man, you're really relaxed. Like, most people are very uncomfortable, you know, in this point in the, you know, operation. He said, well, how do you do that? And I said, I don't know. I just feel relaxed. I said, maybe it's got something to do with my meditation. He said, oh, I do that too. I meditate. You know, I, was, I just learned on the weekend, and we just um, were taught this really cool method. He just looked at sultanas for like 20 minutes. And I was like, <laughs> what? So looking at sultanas... So there's all sorts of weird stuff going on out there. Yeah, right. Um, and I guess focusing on the sultanas, you guess, I guess you get sort of focused, you get s central in your awareness and maybe get into the story of this was once a grape on a vine and who knows what else. But there's some really like interesting stuff going on out there. But I'd say there's techniques ultimately literally which focus and concentrate the mind and attempt to create quietude or stillness through that act of limiting the movement or scope of the mind. Mm. So you direct it towards something, the breath, the body, candle, something like that. And then there are more sort of contemplative or visualize based techniques where you picture your body healing, you picture light coming in, you uh, feel, you know, you're invoking the quality of love or compassion or sending kindness to the universe. So, mm. And those are all beautiful practices too. But for me, what, what I feel is the highest form of meditation is when you we go beyond your mind. And both those efforts previously mentioned, it's more you're engaging your thinking mind or you're engaging yourself in a common sort of a regular mode of doing your life. Whereas with Vedic meditation, what I love is that you go, you leave yourself. You leave that construction of self, your life, your identity, who you are, what's important, what's going on, what you're excited about, what's troubling you. Mm. You just leave it all behind and you go into this very sort of deep inner sanctum 
And then you come out from that and you're like, oh, that thing, I can see that clearly now. I'm not worried about that anymore. That edge has been taken off. And so it's just basically about transcending, you know, your mind is the whole, the whole, the whole design of it. I'm trying to get my head around this. So presumably there is, you mentioned that it's not necessarily a religious aspect, but a spiritual aspect. Yes. Do you? And I think you... that's really important to tackle because a lot of people, they hear the word spiritual and they hide behind the couch. They're like, who is, that's disgusting. I hate that word. So it's good to unpack it, I think, because if people notice they're having these like aversions or reactions just to a word, think like we need to really explore like, well, what does that mean for you? Mm. Um, you know, why, why is that arousing such a strong response? And I think until people really learn to change their association with it or their feeling around it, they're going to deprive themselves mm. of something which is really essential to us as human beings. Because, you know, if you're not uh, familiar with spirit, when it comes time to sh shed this body, which we all have to do, you're going to have a real tough time. Or when someone leaves, you're going to have a real tough time. Mm. Um, how are you going to manage that? But if you've got this understanding that, we are essentially spirit, which means essence, which means there's something in this body which is greater than the body, which is animating the body. There's something which, some intelligence which pervades my whole physiology. There's an intelligence which is governing the orbit of all the electrons in all the atoms, which is keeping our heart beating every moment, that keeps you know the, uh, the planets in orbit. There's this sacred thing about being a human being. And getting in touch with that brings richness to, richness to life. Being separate or cut off from that promotes suffering in life. So I think, I think I'm going to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to turn into dust and that's it. Yeah. But <laughs> and even in your life, like how many people pursue like these, these targets that their mind have set and they reach them and then they're like, oh, I'm still unfulfilled. Yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of sucks. What more do I need? Like uh, according to, you know, the school of thought that, that I've been brought up in and that, that I subscribe to, we really need to have a felt connection with, you know, our deeper self mm. and the heart of life. Yeah. And what are the experiences people cherish most? Falling in love, you know, and having these uh, experiences of being in oneness. And that's what ultimately people are seeking, these mm. experiences being really deeply immersed and connected and outside of just the chaos that's their everyday mind. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. We have like this unquenchable desire to have more, do more, look better, mm. um, buy more fancy things. But I mean, even in my own life, you know, you'll buy, you'll buy a nice car and it's great. And then you're like, yeah, cool. Weeks. I could be driving like to a certain degree. I mean, mm. I was, <laughs> um, you're like, oh, it's exciting. And then it's like, oh, well, this is just normal. Yeah, you yeah, sort of exactly. return to this sort of... I don't know, this level of just where it, it doesn't, and I guess that happens for everyone in you know, these people yeah. that have got, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, they get to a point where um, they're probably just as happy as I am. Mm -hmm. um, but they've got, so it's like, it's not, it's like a temporary state of mm. bliss that then you return back to. It's just that dopamine spike and then you're back to normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. right. So there's this other thing which is really important, which is your state of being. Because you can have peaks and troughs, but you have essentially your baseline. And so the idea is, can I elevate and raise my baseline state? And uh, 
And one of the ways, you know, meditation does it, it just keeps raising it, raising it, raise it. And then you start to tap into this feeling of just equanimity where it doesn't really matter if you've got the fast car or the crappy car or you've got the bank balances like that or like that. You just, you, there's part of you which is not anchored in that game anymore. Mm. It just feels like, well, I'm solid and I feel I'm, I'm rich innately and I feel happy innately. And it's not, you know, it's the yardstick isn't outside of me. It's really what's sort of living and breathing within my own subjective experience. Mm. And so I think, you know, if people aren't sort of living a spiritual life, then it, you get to that point you were talking about where someone is just living completely on the veneer or the superficial plane of life. Oh, I feel shit. Well, I've got to fill that void by getting some surgery or buying a new this or getting a new that, or they're trying to just substitute that sense of lack or you know feeling that void yeah and there's there's no amount of like handbags that can ever do that you just keep getting one every you know few days yeah it's true you see also you see these multi like ultra rich people like celebrities they do more and more crazy Mm. things by more and more crazy yeah you know they live these crazy lifestyles and a lot of them end up in rehab or killing themselves or (laughs) yeah It's a real shame. Like, yeah. wouldn't it be great if it actually were the case that all you needed to fulfill your life would be money? Mm. That'd be amazing. Mm. But we know that's just not the case. Mm. Like you said, there's so many Hollywood megastars and superstars that suicide. And, yeah. you know, even one of my clients, a billionaire, he flat out just said to me when I first started working with him, I said, what can I do? You kind of seem to have like pretty much everything anyone could hope for. And he said, yeah, except I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. And can you help me with that? It's like, Okay. Let's, 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 let's begin. Yeah. And I think there's different ways to live your life. You can live it completely externally oriented mm. or you can live it completely internally oriented. And I like to find there's a, there's a synthesis of the two and that's ultimately what it's for. You get born into a human body, into a human world to learn to like master that experience and, and get the, the most joy out of it. But I think if you forget the inner life, then you're just completely forgetting like the whole purpose. Mm of what, what life's ultimately about. Um, why do I get so bloody angry in traffic? It's <laughs> like lose my brain. Like someone could do this. Like yeah. if someone like walked past me in the street and bumped me, I'm like, oh, cool, whatever. Yeah. Someone like cuts me off in traffic, I lose my shit. What? what? That's because <laughs> you haven't been meditating. Yeah. <laughs> what, why? I used to be that same person. Yeah, right. What's with that? Um, well, I noticed for me what it was is my mind would have an attachment to I need to be here. And it should take me that long to get there. Right. And so it's basically when your mental model, you know, crashes up against reality. And so when your mental model isn't fulfilled, then you start to feel symptoms of irritation and frustration and resentment and all that sort of stuff. So anytime you feel stressed as a practice or you're feeling some frustration, you just got to go, okay, it's not the world. It's my programming. Let me look at what's in me, which is generating this frustration because the guy in the car next to you could be really relaxed. So I think all those, like suffering is probably one of the best teachers that exists on the planet for human beings to awaken and become better people. Yeah, right. I got to that point of extreme suffering where I thought, this is no good. And I really learned, oh, the message is stop doing that suffering and change the way you're living. So we have, you know, real sort of mild forms and then extreme forms. And if you just keep paying attention to the mild stuff, it never becomes extreme. You'll never get burned out. You'll never kind of crash and fail and do all those, you know, get on the edge of a cliff and need to step off it because you will have been basically making amends or doing the, you know, melting the thing before it hardens. 
So I think in those times, it's just an opportunity to go, oh, what's in my conditioning that's making, causing me to get triggered or react this way? Mm. I think and there's then, also a little bit of, it's a little bit like the keyboard warrior that you keep on going on about. Is You're yeah. sort of in your big car. They can't really hear you. You're sort of protected by your car and you're not really <laughs> being yourself. Yeah. You're sort of, you know, you're screaming at someone, but they can't really hear you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you wouldn't do that. Probably in a shopping mall. No. You just yeah. wouldn't. It'd just be odd. But it's also, you know, there's so much to learn. You realize, okay, well, what am I doing? I've committed that another time and place is better than where I am right now. And so I'm dis- disregarding this opportunity to just be fully present in the car to embrace where I am, who I am, what's going on. Um, and also I'm kind of being a little bit selfish at this traffic because I'm traffic too. Yeah, right. I'm as much the problem as the traffic is because I'm actually, you know, contributing to that jam right now. Yeah, right. So it's like, I want the world to be my way. It's like, well, how about you just learn to soften that a little bit? And yeah. just in those moments, you just learn to change your mindset. Like I came up with a formula once. It was W plus I equals E. Like a little bit like Einstein's formula for relativity. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you've got W, which essentially is the world, the world around you and all of the things that happen. And then the I means how you interpret all those things that happen around you. And based on how you interpret those things, you'll get E, your experience. Mm. So it's really the power is in us ultimately because mm. you look at people who have gone through very like challenging human experiences from, you know, you know, we, we, we all don't need to use our imagination. There's been just people that have suffered dramatically. They've come out unscathed or untouched or better people by it because they've chosen to rather interpret it as I was persecuted or this was a terrible event. Actually, I'm going to use it. Just I'm going to metabolize it and let it make me have mm. more wisdom, more insight, and make me stronger and make me, you know, wiser and whatnot. Mm. So the interpretation is the key thing. Like when we're getting stressed, it's for a reason. It's mostly our own stuff, mm. especially in this country where there's no bombs falling from the sky. It's not a military dictatorship. We don't have famine and drought and all that sort of stuff happening. It's a pretty functional place. Like we're not, our existence isn't under threat. Our egos are, but that's not life or death. That's just, you know, um, yeah, that's just our 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 sense of self is under threat. Mm. So I think it's really good. That's the inner work where you just change, okay, what's making me tick, what's causing me to feel a particular way, get in touch with that. It's interesting you touched on a point that you said um, not focusing on the present moment. And it's, it's actually really true when I mm. think about it, I was sitting here thinking about it while you were saying, while you are talking, is that we seem to be always looking forward to this, looking forward to that, yeah. or thinking about when we did this or when we did that or this mm. memory. Yeah. But you like... You see it all the time. People like they're at an event or they're, and they're just taking photos. They're not actually that's in the amazing. moment. I'm guilty of it myself. Yeah. Do you, is that just normal human behavior or do you think that's something that we've learned as societies? That I think it's, it's always definitely getting worse. Yeah. Like I've noticed this, you know, the iPhone generations and the poor kids. Like I went to, I was at a, a, a music festival not so long ago and my friends, friends of mine, flight facilities were playing and I was sitting there in the crowd and their music's amazing. But I looked around and I thought, there's so many people on their phones videoing it with the idea that I want to video this and post this so my friends know that I was here having a really awesome time yeah. and I got a lot of views and likes and I'm kind of creating this persona or this idea that I'm so I'm, happy. I'm, yeah, I'm so, you know, I'm killing it. But really they weren't there with the music. They were having thoughts about how they could like leverage that 
but they weren't really there being touched by the music. So that was a good a good portion of the crowd. And then the other portion was like totally inebriated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like, okay, how many people are here? Have really genuinely here anchored in the experience? And there's not that many. Um, and I think there's this weird thing that's being exploited. You've got to think like, Whoever creates, you know, Instagram and, you know, Facebook and all of these algorithms which are associated with them, they're doing everything in their power to capture human attention. So they're highly intelligent people who have got huge teams, an enormous amount of research, understood the way in which the human brain functions, where its weaknesses and vulnerabilities are. So then they create these technologies of these platforms which basically just capture it's like cigarettes you yeah. know they put you know all these addictive chemicals in there tobacco on its own is actually pretty pretty sacred plant um used for thousands of years in different native cultures but when you put all these other things to it then it starts to distort it so i think what is happening is people you know everyone wants to feel loved everyone wants a sense of belonging everyone wants to feel a sense of People are interested in me and support me. And so then we start to post all these things. And so everything becomes a way in which you can put on that platform and increase your resume or your CV. Mm. But it's totally illusory. It's based in ego and it's so like ephemeral as well. So it becomes like this constant thing you have to engage in to, you know, keep up this relevance or keep up with your culture. And I think it's a real dangerous sort of experiment that's being run. It's almost as if people need constant reassurance that people Mm. like them, but otherwise they feel depressed. And I think there's good evidence to to show that that's a real Mm. chemical thing. Like you said, it's not just Yeah, it's the dopamine that you get with each post, with each like, you know, you get that validation. Yeah. And then not only do they post the, like, you know, we find ourselves posting it's like constantly checking back who liked it, what did they say, how many views, how many likes, and and it just becomes this whole crazy abstract thing. Whereas if yeah. you were an indigenous Australian three hundred years ago, and you'd be thinking one day there's going to be people with these little devices and they're doing this thing, they're always checking in on it every like five or fifteen minutes. Like, yeah. That's insane. That'll never happen. What about Mother Nature? Look how beautiful she is. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's enough? You know, and the thing is, that's the question. What's enough? There's never enough. It's true. God, you can I'm, never satisfy the craving of the mind for more. I wanted to, I was listening to a podcast with, I forget who it was, but you were on there and another gentleman. Mm-hmm. And you went into the sort of the physiology of what's happening with the brain when you meditate. Mm. Can you just go into, I think you were talking about EEGs and functional MRIs. Yeah. Just that really interests me because that's yeah. sort of tangible. Ah, yeah. That's how it works kind of thing. Yeah. So in case people are wondering, like meditation isn't a belief based Um, practice there's been at last count like in excess of 800 published peer-reviewed studies on this particular form of meditation Mm. and in meditation and mindfulness there's been like god it must be a quarter of a million like it's insane how many studies have been done so there's irrefutable evidence to support like hey this creates neurophysiological change and based on that it creates different um performances and different psychological states. So when you look at the brain, that's really the medium which allows the mind to be exhibited in a particular way. It kind of orchestrates. So it's like when you have a radio, if you're not quite tuned in to exactly, you know, 105.7, if it's 105.5 or something, you get a bit of the music, but it's distorted. Mm. 
And so the human brain can operate in different frequency ranges and in different patterns. So, you know, you've got beta, delta, theta, alpha, and gamma, and there's all these kind of um, mixtures and variances. So when you meditate, you're really getting the brain to become coordinated. And an EEG is basically a device you put on the human scalp and there's electrodes which are measuring the electrical activity that emanates out of different parts of the brain. And, you know, it's got to pass through the brain tissue, it's got to pass through the scalp and the skin, and then it's got to get picked up on. And there's muscles in the brain, in the head, so anytime you smile or blink, the EEG will pick it up. So when you're sitting and meditating, you know, you've got to be still or you'll basically confuse the signals. But what's been shown is when people put on one of these machines and they begin meditating, they go from a very distinct brainwave pattern into a very altered brainwave pattern. And what's been shown to be exhibited is what we call coherence, hmm. EEG coherence, meaning the EEG, which is measuring the global activity in the brain and all the different patterns from those electrodes get um, choreographed or printed out on, on the um, monitor. And when you meditate, they all become aligned. Usually they're not aligned at all. Hmm. Very scattered, distorted. There's no like uniformity. It'll be the difference between like they say having a, an orchestra with no conductor. Everyone's just kind of doing their own thing, cacophony. And then when the when the conductor returns from his lunch break and then creates this harmony, you get this beautiful symphony of sound. Hmm. So when you're in a meditative state, there is this more integration. There's this more calm. All the parts of the brain are acting as one essentially as opposed to being very fragmented. Hmm. And the benefit of bringing you know, that experience into the brain means that it starts to culture because the mind's an expression of the brain. So it means that you're starting to extend that coherence into the waking state, increasingly you're creating more harmony and more integration. So then you could say that the meditation becomes a rehearsal for having a very functional brain in your waking life. It's a way of positively conditioning it. I don't know if you know the answer, but are bits of the brain being turned on that aren't normally? Yes. So there's upregulation and downregulation that happens. And depending on the human being, maybe they've got a lot of activity more in the, uh, the hind brain, or maybe they're under a lot of stress and their amygdala is sort of overactive and maybe their neocortex isn't functioning and online uh, as it should be. And when you meditate, there's, no, there's an increase in blood flow and this basically gets the neurons to start firing again and then the neocortex really comes online and then whatever neural pathways were not formed begin to get formed and get strengthened. So you can find that, you know, and I've seen scans of a damaged brain through stress drug or alcohol abuse and that was done via an MRI and then I've looked at those same human beings having scans three months later and the functional lesions in their brain had disappeared just yeah. through meditating. So a functional MRI is where you're actually you know thinking or, or saying something as you're in the scanner yeah and, and it's picking up different areas that light up suddenly yeah it's interesting Crazy. Yeah. And Norman Doidge wrote a great book, The Brain That Changes Itself, because the old idea of neuroscience was your brain develops throughout your life and then at some point in life it ceases to develop. There was no neurogenesis. Brain cells wouldn't grow and develop and come into being. They just thought you establish a certain neuroset and then you just 
exist within the confines of that for the rest of your life. And that was neuroscience for a long time. Mm. And then they discovered neuroplasticity, which actually went, no, the brain actually at all times is developing and uh, awakening potentially if you're challenging it and using it in a particular way. Um, but the thing is that, you know, the brain will adapt to exposure. So whatever you give your brain as an experience, it'll become wired for that experience. And that's how you would recover from a stroke. If you had rehab, you would create new pathways yeah. to use your arm again. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And the brain, you know, it doesn't, either, it doesn't know how to make a distinction between what you're actually doing and what you're imagining yourself doing. Now, if you sit at a piano and you play it, your brain will light up in a particular way. If you stop playing and you put your hands in your lap and then visualize yourself playing the piano, the brain lights up in the exact same way. Hmm. So there's ways in which you can develop and train the brain and awaken certain centers of it and bring it online with actually out having to physically do the work. So what this brings into light, like what are most people doing all the time? Like if a bear's chasing you, yeah, you're going to be in a state of stress and panic and all of that. But most people are imagining bears chasing them all the time. What about if this thing happens at work? And what about if this thing goes wrong? What about if I can't meet my repayments? What about if the market goes up? What about if it goes down? What's going to happen tomorrow? Does he like me? I'm not sure, you know. <laughs> That's like flight or flight response, on. is it? Well, it's part of it. Like the fight or flight response is you turn on a response in your physiology which was designed, you know, in our origins to keep us safe, to keep us guarded, to keep us alive essentially. Yeah. Because we lived in predatory environments. There wasn't always a Woolworths. There wasn't always, you know, a police department. There wasn't always, you know, these big safe structures that we live in now. So Mother Nature gifted us that fight or flight response which gives you energy, focus, and gives you an enormous amount of strength. And it shuts down certain parts of your brain that, you need for high cognition, but they're not useful when you're running away from danger. And so that fight or flight response um, is something that used to save us, but now we're evoking it when we don't really need that response. And so that fight or flight response, if you evoke it enough, it then becomes hardwired as your default response. So once upon a time, it might have taken your life to be actually under threat for you to go into fight or flight. Now it could just be the thought of, oh my God, I'm going to be late for work. Not getting those likes. Yeah, not getting, you know, why isn't he called? Why isn't she called? And, um, you know, people can trigger themselves to go into fight or flight unnecessarily. You yeah. probably need the response, I reckon, five times in your whole life when you're genuinely under threat or you need to be Superman or Superwoman to save a kid that's fallen in a pool. You don't need to think about it. You just need to act. Yeah. Um, so that response is very valuable. But that fight or flight response is actually a killer. And... The more you get stressed, the more you're evoking that response, hardwiring that into your nervous system, then that becomes who and what you are and how you operate. And like you said, you just normalize it. You don't even know you're stressed anymore. In the same way, you know, people in Hollywood, they aspire to get a certain amount of wealth and notoriety, they get it, and then they normalize it and like, that's not enough. And so this normalization also happens with, you know, enlightenment also, People just forget what it's like to feel so bad because they're so used to feeling good all the time in their own skin. So it's one of the annoying things that the human species does. What do you mean by enlightenment? 
Uh, well, there's different, there's higher states of consciousness according to, you know, Vedic science. So human beings have this potential to get into these very exalted realms where reality becomes different and life is processed differently, experienced on a whole different level. And so that's essentially what meditative practices were originally designed to do, mm. to help people evolve and awaken and reach their greater mental, physical, emotional and spiritual potential. Okay. Could you, I mean, tell me if this is true or not, but you hear about these stories of monks or yeah. gurus sort of not eating for like a year mm. and they've just been, yeah. you know, meditating in a cave somewhere. Is that real? That's real, yeah. Yeah. There's this thing known as cities, S-double-D-H-I, these are known as these very unique capabilities or powers that superhuman powers that that humans possess, and some people don't ever have to drink or eat or sleep. Um, some people are known to manifest things, and I've seen all this stuff myself, and it's it's legitimate, hmm. but it feel falls right outside the range of what our present scientific paradigm knows how to explain. Hmm. And even there was one, um, and it seems to be a lot of this happens in India because their culture really supports it, yeah. and it's normal. So you used to go to an Indian family and say, "Oh, this guy's got a city, and he manifests these things, or can make these things happen." They'd be like, "Sure, and? yeah, yeah." Um, so, yeah. and they'll tell you 10 other stories of similar things where you'd say it and they go, that's bull crap. And um, so I think when there's permission for things to happen, it can happen more. So in India, the, you know, there was one instance of, um, and there's been many of these, but this person didn't need to eat or drink. And so the American, uh, you know, FBI and other agencies wanted to see whether this guy was a shonk. So put him in a room, set up a whole heap of cameras, monitored him for a month, and he never ate, never never drunk, never went to the toilet, nothing happened. They're like, okay, it's legitimate. We can't explain it, but, it, it, you know, it's possible. I'm trying to understand the <laughs> purpose of it. I mean, I can understand mm. twice a day, reboot, yeah. relax, and, you know, that makes sense to me, but I can't understand the purpose of that. Well, what's, sort the of seems, what's the purpose of eating three times a day? Well, to sustain your energy and, and function. what about if this person can sustain their energy without eating? It's not like they sat there and went, okay, I'm never going to eat. It's just that happened to them. But <laughs> but I'm, I, I've sort of got this image of literally a guy sort of cross-legged saying, um, for like a month, no, basically no, doing nothing. No, he's just hanging out in the room. It's an ability that he possesses without having to try. <laughs> okay. So he's not like, actually like in a trance. No. Okay. Exactly. Okay. But there are also those instances where people have just gone into deep meditation for, for very, very, very long periods of time. Mm. And it's because for them, they want to get in touch with the nectar of life. Mm. And that for them, for that particular person, involves disengaging from the outer realm of life. Yeah. And they're just a particular, you know, they've got a particular blueprint. Whereas our blueprint is life's here to be like engaged and lived and participated in on a physical level yeah. and intellectual level. and But there are instances, certainly the many of them in India, where it's the direction is the other way. They renounce life, they renounce the world, they renounce relationships and all of that stuff. Yeah, it, it's yeah. sort of become becoming more monk-like, yeah. reclusive. Yes, and it's noted, you know, in Vedic tradition that there are monastic people and there are householder people. Mm. And very, very small um, percentage of people are monastic in their nature. Mm. Most of the planet is a uh, householder. Yeah. They're here to create families and 
you know, live in communities and socialize and, yeah. you know, be part of that, that fabric. And it's great that there's both, you know, who wants a world where it's just one color or yeah. it's just one, one type, one flavor. Like, I don't want that world. Mm. That's why we travel. Imagine you left Sydney and then you went to another city like this is exactly the same. And I think that's the, like, people are prejudiced when in their own minds, they'd be like, yeah, that's just stupid of me to expect like other cultures to be the same as me. Like how bland would the world be? And I yeah. think it's becoming like more and more and more that Western paradigm is unfortunately ruining these other cultures, which we should be preserving and cherishing for what, for how they live, because it's mm. a wonderful way to challenge our own. And I think that's one of the great tragedies of the indigenous uh, Australians is we could have learned so much from their way of life, you know, but unfortunately it was decimated and it's a long journey back. But how did they live for thousands and thousands and thousands of years in total harmony with the planet? Like we really need to learn that now. Mm. Mm. Feels like it. Mm. So obviously the ideal situation is people come to you and learn how to meditate, but for people that might be listening to this right now, mm. is there anything that you can impart on them that they might be able to start doing today yeah. to start the meditation process or start their journey? Yeah. I mean, as you know, I teach a, yep. an in-person in practice. Yes. I don't do like an online thing or app or whatever, yep. but there are plenty of those now. There's yep. some apps and there's a lot of popular ones. I think they're a great place to, to start, get a taste and be introduced, yep. but also feel Sometimes like headspace, you mean places? Yeah, headspace, and and there's there's a few others. I've I've not really investigated them, but I've taught a lot of people who have done headspace, and they said it was great for me. And now I feel like I need to sort of go to a new level, but it was great to get me established in the routine and the practice of it. Um, So I think people just got to try different different um, apps and practices out there. And then just feel what's a fit for them, what works for them, what they're enjoying, what they're getting benefit from. And that's a, a good place to start. Okay. Yep. Yoga is also, you know, through the body is a great way to do it. Like making your body healthy and um, just nourishing yourself on that level can be a good inroad to then being able to do, you know, the work on the mind much, much more effectively. Yeah. Well, I know that a lot of people feel that if they don't exercise, yeah. um, like for myself included, I feel crappy. Yeah. Um, and I discovered like an art for like bonsai about mm. 10 years ago. And it's something that I do as much as I can. And when I'm doing it, it's gotten to a point now that I've become so fluid in the things that I can do that I don't think any anymore. Yeah. It becomes like this yeah, involuntary meditative state where I can have this really horrible, stressful day mm. and I can go down and sit and work on a tree for hours yeah. And it goes like that and awesome. I'll finish and I'll feel relaxed, but I don't know whether that's, I don't feel like I'm, I've done, I've been in that, in that, mm. in that headspace meditating with you where you feel yourself melt and mm-hmm. it's not like that with when I'm doing this, but I, yeah. at, at the end, I still feel a lot less sure. I can go outside and water and, and look mm. at the trees for half an hour and, and, and you come inside and you feel like mm. relaxed. Yeah. Is it the same? Is it like different forms of meditation or you're going yeah. to a certain level or and it's kind of like what i said before meditation is so broad so yeah yes. it's a form of meditation yeah you're changing you know your mode of mind and your your state of being and you're altering your thought patterns and really you're taking a holiday from just you know your everyday activities and you know what's sort of playing on your mind um 
And the idea, what we would hope is that through that practice, that when you come out, your mind just doesn't go back to where it was before mm. you were doing the bonzo. You'd notice, oh, I'm feeling mentally just more calm and yeah. more, more integrated. And I'm feeling like my the temperature in my brain has settled significantly and now I can have more objectivity around it all. Mm-hmm. So I'd say anything that can... Um, altered the state of your mind it's definitely like something we should be making a habit of engaging in but i would say there's a difference like some people say when they go running that's their meditation mm. when they're swimming they're running that's their meditation definitely it's 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 a form of unplugging and mm. disconnecting from you know your the other self that you spend a lot of time in yeah and i just think we have to understand states like most people are in a mono state it's just the state they're in all the time. Whereas mm. what you're learning to do is, okay, I'm in that state where I'm at work and I'm, you know, doing all those things I do. I'm interacting and running my business and whatnot. But then I change state where I'm just fully present. And then you can go into another state where it's a play, state of play. I'm just being a clown, mucking around with my kids and my cousins or my friends or this or that. And I think it's really important that we learn to change states, you know, all, as, as often as we can. Otherwise, you get conditioned, you get stale, you get stagnant, and life just doesn't have any richness or freshness to it. Yeah. And that, by ne- definition of me, is like a living prison. Yeah. Well, it's like that Um, when you get stuck in a routine, it feels like your life goes very fast. Yeah. Um, but when you change, it's like that change of velocity. Mm. When you do something that's not routine, um, that you feel like life travels more slowly. Like when you go on a holiday, like I went on a holiday yeah. to the States last year and we did like traveled from New York and then went up to, um, to visit a friend up in, in, in Portland in Oregon and we drove down and stopped and went all, and like we were only gone for three weeks. It felt like I was gone for like two months. Yeah. It was like, it was like my perception of yeah. time totally. had changed mm. altogether. And yeah. it's like, I can't help but feel it's like that's that change in. Yeah, change in environment, change in scene. Like it's such a healthy thing to do. Yeah. And I feel like why people don't grow or suffer in their life is because we're prone to be habitual. Mm. It's, it's unfortunate. Like everyone sleeps on the same side of the bed, Yeah. brushes with the same toothpaste, with the same hand, mm-hmm. parks in the same places, eats the same food, gets the same groceries all the time, goes to these particular cafes. Like mm. how many of us are guilty of doing that? Yeah. Pretty I mean, much everybody. I, yeah. And you realize, okay, that's habits are good, but sometimes there's like it's a depreciating routine. And you realize, okay, when I challenge myself, when I step into the unknown, when I break patterns, that's when neurogenesis happens. Mm. That's when I actually grow my consciousness and I grow my um, my sense of reverence and fascination and awe for life. And and like I was saying, but when we were off air, you know, I used to, I was living in Bondi, and life was so good here. I was absolutely so busy, killing it, had an amazing thing going on. But just part of me went, okay, time to move. And I thought, that's a really dangerous and potentially stupid move because I've built this thing and now I'm just going to move far away from it. And I moved, you know, not that far, but an hour away on the northern beaches, living on the back of a hill. And I was like, what am I doing here? What energy took me here? And I just thought, it's a good thing to change, good thing to challenge yourself. And then it led to this, the dawn of this new thing. And then I realized, okay, I'm really have established something fantastic here. And then, then I had this calling, okay, well, just throw it all away and go and live in Byron now. It's like, <laughs> okay. And, and it comes with its challenges, but I find like it's what grows you and stretches you. Cause I don't want to be one of those people that is just living the same life every day. Mm. 
the same life they were living 30 years ago, they're still living. Mm. And I reckon that's like one of the dangers of, you know, not being willing to have those hard conversations with yourself or not being willing to step into the unknown or challenge your fears and do all that stuff. So ultimately meditation is designed to make you into a more courageous, you know, conscious human being. And the definition of having more consciousness means you've got a bigger bandwidth and you can appreciate more things. You can include more details into your, you know, your frame of reference. And that's helpful if you're a parent, if you're running a business, uh, if you're, you know, someone who's interested in health and well-being, like you need a very broad bandwidth. Otherwise you're just monofocal and that's when you get one thing, but you lose all these others. Yeah. So I think the more consciousness we have, the more connected and the more we can sort of weave into just the nature of who and what we are. Like we become a Renaissance man. Like um, you look at guys like Leonardo da Vinci, he was an amazing engineer. He was also an amazing um, painter, uh, author, uh, just brilliant across so many different fields. And he was just really illustrating the potential, you know, he was also a philosopher to have all these aspects available and lively and it would transition from one state or mode into another. And I think we just get caught in our modes too often. And then it's like life just doesn't blossom. Mm. So I think it's really important to like, if you have a problem or with something or are challenged by something, it's good to like go deep into it. Like if a word like spirituality makes you feel like, oh my God, like that's just electrifying. I can't stand that. It's like, okay, well, why not just be brave and like sit with it rather than just be prejudiced and, you know, shut the doors, go, could there be something to it? Like, I'm so open-minded. I think I don't have all the answers. We don't know uh, even how the pyramids were built. Like, so there must be more information out there that we could just be open to or to access or just, you know, lend ourselves too, because maybe it holds a promise or possibility for something new to dawn in our lives or in, or in our world. Mm. Because, for example, you know, we think that this st- stuff we're living inside right now, the space between us, is just like a vacuum. There's nothing there. Whereas they've discovered that's like a plenum. It's full. It's rich. Like it's infinite in its potentiality. And science is postulating that you can draw infinite energy out of just the space that we live in and exist in because it's not emptiness, it's fullness. And if we were able to somehow lend ourselves culture to that concept that there is something which is powerful and um, supreme at the source of creation or at the source of matter, that would make redundant our environmental problems right now because fossil fuels could be eliminated. But because we're just like committed to know this is life, this is how stuff works, that's what gets us into trouble. Yeah, it's that myopic sort of yeah, exactly. tunnel vision. Yeah. And that's what's good about transcending because you go, okay, this is who I am, this is how life works, and then you go into this other thing and you're like, oh, this is different. That's a different place and state I went into. Hmm, interesting. That's starting to open me up to the fact that there is this inner realm. Mm. And it, it's just a very healthy thing to do to get in and out of yourself because that's the biggest challenge people have is like breaking the habit of their own thoughts Mm. and their own way of seeing life. And I think when you suffer, that's life saying, hey, can you just see this a bit differently? Mm. Can you interpret this a little bit differently? And the people that we celebrate and all the, you know, the greatest athletes, they all find in those moments, oh, okay, I can interpret this differently. Like a loss can destroy you. Or you can use that loss to educate you 
and give you more strength and grit and determination. Like I'm working with the football team now and I noticed that in the first season we were working with them, loss would really like bring them down, challenge their confidence and esteem and then they would get into that mindset where they would lose more because they were questioning themselves and doubting themselves. And now I'm watching what's happened to them this season. It's like, who are this, who is this team? When they lose, they're like, we're so much better than that. We are the best. And they had really no right to beat us. We let ourselves down and they come back with 200% determination. And all that is, is just the eye changed, mm -hmm. that eye aspect. And that's a beautiful thing. And that works across the board, like all places. You're in traffic, I'm getting stressed. Okay, how could I interpret this differently? That's an opportunity to listen a little bit more to Joe Rogan, mm. you know, <laughs> or, you know, it's an opportunity just to embrace, is the moment enough? Yeah. Can I see the beauty in where I'm sitting right now? For sure. Um, or my kids being really annoying, you know, and they won't kind of do as they're told. Well, is it an opportunity for you to maybe expand your definition of, what could happen or what's appropriate. They're a kid. They shouldn't be like an adult. Celebrate what it's like to be playful and get down on their level and, you know, crawl around or, you know, do something. And you find just in that moment of questioning yourself, you open yourself. Mm. I think we've got to be really on danger, on guard to just our patterns, our habitual ways of living. For sure. Mm. I think that's a nice way to end. I'm yeah, feeling exactly. quite... Sleepy and relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> and introverted. Maybe I'd need to question my whole self. Jake's going to quit. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah David, I'm quitting. That's a healthy thing to do. And you might question everything and go, no, I'm doing great. This is it. I I'm moving to Byron. So that. <laughs> yeah. You were there not long ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, Gary, how can people get in touch with you and maybe explore, you know, courses or, or whatever? Yeah. So um, they can follow me on uh, Instagram. I don't really do Facebook or any of those other platforms. Um, What's your Instagram handle? Just Gary Gora. Yeah. Gary with one R. One R. Sorry, Gary one R. And, and Gora's got two. Yeah. Um, and there's my website. So I do meditation courses, but I'm also building, I'm in the sort of final stages of building a retreat in Byron. So, oh, right. yeah. Um, and like you did, you did a course. Yeah. And what I've always desired is take people through longer form processes and really immerse them in things yep. where you can start to unlock different aspects of, you know, their potential and clean up different areas of their lives. So, yeah, I've built a purpose, um, you know, purpose-built retreat, which is, well, that, and that's in Byron. So people can come along and do different things there with me. And So that's GaryGoro.com? Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. I just realized, and we were talking about the pertinence of oh, how this topic would fit into what we do. And I was look, I'm looking at the banner here going inside aesthetics. And it's like inside, like not just yeah. insiders in secrets, insiders in inside ourselves there you go we're holistic there you go from the start without even knowing that's, it that's the new trend holistic <laughs> yeah. yeah awesome well thanks Gary enjoy the rest of your time in Sydney and have a safe trip back home thank you thanks, thanks Gary bye For our latest news, upcoming episode information and mini video clips of our guests, you can follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. We've also just started a YouTube channel called Inside Aesthetics and we'll be uploading more content and longer videos in the future.